You guys all doing well? Yeah. You guys in the Christmas spirit? Yeah. So last week I, I quoted Home Alone where they said this is Christmas, the season of perpetual hope, right? So I'm talking to you during the month of December about why we can have hope. Last week we talked about we can have hope this Christmas season because God has a great rescue plan, amen? This week I want to talk to you about we can have hope this Christmas season because God has chosen to work through broken people. We can have hope this Christmas because God still works through broken people. In 1992, something amazing happened uh, in the basketball world. I don't know if you guys are basketball fans or not, but I am, so you get to hear about it. So in 1992, up until that point, only amateurs were allowed to compete for the gold medal and play for Team USA basketball. But in 1992, they opened it up for professionals to play. So they were trying to put together the best basketball team that ever existed was the goal. And I want to list to you some of the players that were on that team. It was Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen of the Chicago Bulls, John Stockton and Carl Malone of the Utah Jazz, Magic Johnson of the Los Angeles Lakers, Larry Bird of the Boston Celtics, Patrick Ewing of the New York Knicks, Chris Mullen of the Golden State Warriors, David Robinson of the San Antonio Spurs, uh, Charles Barkley of the Philadelphia 76ers, and Clyde Drexler of the Portland Trailblazers. So this team was designed to be super fast and athletic. It had the best passer in the world at the time in Magic Johnson. It had the best shooter in the world at the time in Larry Bird, the best scorer in Magic Johnson, some of the best defenders in Scottie Pippen and David Robinson. It was an incredible team. I can remember watching one interview with Michael Jordan, and it was halftime of their game, and he was super upset, and the person was talking to him, interviewing him, trying to find out why he was so upset, and he was upset because the other team had made it onto their side of the court three times. He said, I didn't want them on our side of the court at all. So the dream team, as this team was called, was undefeated, and they won all of their games by an average of 43 points during this Olympic run. They were later referred to as the most prolific display of dominance in the history of team sports. So if you were alive to watch that and you were a basketball fan, that was a really fun time to watch basketball. It was amazing. If you wanted to win the gold medal for Team USA Basketball in 1992, that is exactly the team you would have wanted to have. That was exactly the team you would have wanted to put together. Now I want you to think for a second about an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God who created everything. And he wanted to put together a team, but it wasn't just a team to win the gold medal. He wanted to put together a team of people to rescue humanity, to rescue the whole world from sin and death. They were held hostage by sin and death. And when you would think about that team that God would put together, you would think he would put together the greatest and the most brilliant minds and the most capable people. God is always building a team to execute his greatest great rescue plan. God is still today putting together a team to execute his great rescue plan. When I think about the team that God would put together, I ask myself, would I qualify to be a part of that team? Am I gifted enough? Am, am I talented enough? Is my character at a level where I would, God would want someone like me to be a part of his team? Every great rescue plan has some key people, some key players. 
If I were to embark on the biggest rescue in all of history, I would probably look for the brightest minds, the most well-trained people, the most capable people. But I want to look this morning at who God picked to be a part of his dream team when he wanted to save the world. The first, person, first group of people that God picked are called magi. Sometimes they're referred to in the Bible as wise men. They're talked about in Daniel chapter 2 and in Jeremiah 39. These guys were counselors to kings. And when we think of the wise men, like we think that they saw a star in the sky and they traveled for a few days to go see Jesus. But the truth is they were studying this star for two years. For two years they were watching this star and traveling to try and find where, where Jesus was going to be, where the Savior was going to be born. And they traveled over 300 miles to get to the place where Jesus was going to be born. That's no small trip in those days. It's not a small trip now, but back then it was a lot longer of a trip. This is God's special operation to save his people, the Jews. And the first people that recognize that the king is going to be born, the savior of the world is going to be born, are a group of Gentile people who are staring at the stars and have been telling fortunes for hundreds of years. These guys were often referred to as sorcerers or magicians. These pagan Gentile stargazers are going to be the ones that are first mentioned in God's rescue plan. I don't know about you, but these are not my first pick if I'm looking to save all of humanity. But this was the first group of people that God picked, some Gentile stargazers. The second group of people that God picks is Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is in Luke chapter 1. And here we learn that Zechariah is a priest. And twice a year, he would go to the temple to serve as a priest. And when he was at the temple, they would cast lots, which was like an old school game of rock, paper, scissors, to find out who would get to go into the temple and offer up prayers and incense. And on this day, Zechariah was chosen. He's married to Elizabeth. His wife is barren. They've wanted a child for years and years, and they've prayed and asked God for a child, but it just hasn't happened. And in those days, if someone wasn't able to have a child, it was believed that they were under a curse from God. So we have Zechariah, who's chosen by lot, which means it was just by luck that he was picked to go into the temple. And he goes into the temple to burn incense and offer prayers to God. And an angel appears to Zechariah. And this angel says, you're going to have a son, and he will make a way for the Savior of the world. And the angel begins to lay out the plan. And Zechariah, because he was a priest, he had studied the Word of God. He had studied the Scriptures, and he knew about these biblical Old Testament prophecies. But still, how does he respond? He responds with unbelief. So the Lord causes him to not be able to speak. So Zechariah is kind of freaked out. He goes in, he meets with this angel. This angel tells him information that he already knew to be true because he had studied the scriptures, but he didn't have the faith for it, and God caused him not to be able to speak. And he wasn't going to be able to speak until his son was born. So he's freaked out because he can't speak, and he goes out of the, tent, the temple kind of scared from meeting with this angel. And everyone's freaked out because he can't speak. And then everyone gets more freaked out because his wife, 
who is way past the age of being able to get pregnant, is now pregnant. So they're kind of freaked out about that. Then their son is born. And Elizabeth says his name will be John. And then everyone is freaked out about that because they expect his name to be Zechariah because Zechariah was a family name that was passed down from generation to generation. So they take this baby and they go to Zechariah and they say, what will his name be? And he writes on a tablet and he says, his name will be John. And when he wrote that name, John, all of a sudden Zechariah could speak. And now Zechariah begins to prophesy and he begins to quote these Old Testament scriptures from Isaiah and talk about how someone's going to come that's going to make a way for the king of the world to come. So this is like a super unlikely couple that we have here. We have a cursed couple that can't have kids and a priest that doesn't have much faith. And this is the second group of people that God picks to be a part of his dream team. The third person that God picks to be a part of his dream team is Mary. Mary is somewhere between 15 or 16 or so years old, and she's poor. And she, something that's unusual for a woman in those days was to have theological training, but it seems like Mary had some level of theological training because when she prays, she quotes seven or eight Old Testament scriptures that she probably wouldn't have known without some level of training. And we know that Mary's poor because when Mary and Joseph go to take Jesus to the temple, there's two offerings that are taken up. There's an offering for people who are wealthy, and then there's an offering for people that were poor. And Mary and Joseph gave in the offering for people that were poor. If you were wealthy in those days, you would bring a lamb as an offering. And if you were poor, you would bring turtle doves because they were cheaper. And Mary and Joseph brought turtle doves to the offering. So this is God's dream team to save humanity. We have some stargazers, an unbelieving priest with a barren wife who everyone thinks is cursed by God. We have a poor teenager. This is so far who God has put together for his dream team, not exactly who I would expect him to put together. And can you imagine Mary, this 15 to 16-year-old girl, and an angel comes and comes into her room. An angel calls her highly favored, of the Lord, and says that you're going to have a son. And I got to believe that Mary's thinking like, well, there's like one small problem with that situation. Like, I I haven't been with a guy, so I'm pretty sure that's not going to be possible. He says, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And Mary says this thing. She says, be it unto me according to your word. Some of you will remember last week that I said that I believe that this Christmas season God is asking us to believe again. He's asking us to have faith again. He's asking us to believe that he is who he said he is and that we are who he says we are. And when Mary responds to this angel, she says, be it unto me according to your word. And I believe that's the same spirit that the Lord is asking for us to have in this Christmas season is to say, be it unto me according to your word. Can you imagine being teenage Mary and going to tell your friends that an angel came into your bedroom at night and now you're pregnant? i got to believe her friends were like, is the angel's name Joseph by chance? And she's like, no, 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 like for real, an angel came into my room. And then God says to Mary, I'll give you a sign. And I love this, and I want to encourage you with this this morning, is that Mary had faith, and Mary trust, and she believed God. 
But God knew that it was still challenging. He, she probably still had doubts and fears, and so he said, you know what? You have faith, but I'm going to give you a sign to build your faith. And I believe that some of you, as you step out into the thing that God has called you to, into the promise that he has spoken to you, God will meet you, and he will tell you, I'm going to show you a sign to build your faith. So he says, your cousin Elizabeth, who's barren, is pregnant. And the Bible says that Mary hurried off and ran to see Elizabeth because she knew that there was no way for Elizabeth to be pregnant. She wanted to see this sign to confirm that it really was God who was speaking to her. So Mary goes running off to see Elizabeth. And the Bible says she went into Elizabeth's house. Then she went into the room that Elizabeth was in. And when she went into that room, the baby that was inside of Elizabeth's womb, who would eventually become John the Baptist, that baby that was in Elizabeth's womb leapt because that baby sensed the Savior of the world, Jesus, in the womb of Mary. The Bible says that Elizabeth was immediately filled with the Holy Spirit, and then she starts to prophesy, and she starts to quote Old Testament scriptures. And then she says, Blessed are you who believed what the Lord said about you. And I want to tell you guys that same thing this morning. Blessed are you who believe what the Lord said about you. How many of you have some promises that God has spoken over your life that you haven't yet seen fulfilled? Anybody? Some things you're still believing for, some things you're still hoping for, and God wants you to know this morning, blessed are you who will believe what God said about you. The next person that God picked to be a part of his dream team is Joseph. Joseph is a young, devout man, probably about 20 years old, and he's a blue-collar worker. He's poor. He doesn't have much education. Specifically, he's a carpenter. And we know that he's a good man because when he found out that Mary was pregnant, he was going to divorce her, but he wanted to do it in a quiet way, and he wanted to do it in a way that wouldn't embarrass her because he was a good man. But before he could do that, an angel showed up, and an angel speaks to Joseph, and he says, Mary didn't get with another guy. Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and the Savior of the world is about to, to come and visit the planet. You ought to marry this girl. So then Joseph goes ahead and does that. And then a census is being taken, and they want all the people to come to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is just a little dinky town, like nothing special about it, probably a lot like Warsaw. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem, and really the only like uh, thing that Bethlehem was famous for was David grew up in Bethlehem. So they head to Bethlehem for this census, and they get there, and they can't find a place to stay. There's no room in the inn, so they ask if they can stay in a barn. And now the Savior of the world is going to be born in a barn in a place that was built to just to, to protect animals, to keep them out of the weather. And I don't know if you've ever been in a barn with animals. I have. And it's not exactly the kind of place that you would expect the Savior of the world to be born. But there he is. And now the last group of people that the Lord invites to be a part of his dream team are shepherds. And these shepherds are like the lowest of the low on the socioeconomic scale. Shepherds were considered homeless wanderers. They didn't make any money. They didn't really have a place to stay. They would just be out in the wilderness caring for the sheep. And they were looked at as the lowest of low. And then these specific shepherds that are used in this story are the lowest of the low amongst shepherds. They're on the night watch. So you know if you're working the night shift, you're like the lowest 
of the low. Like, no one wants to work the night shift, right? And here these shepherds are, and the angels fill the sky, and they start to worship Jesus, and the shepherds join them in worshiping Jesus. And eventually these shepherds become evangelists because they go and they tell everyone about the wonders that they saw. So now Jesus has been born, and it's been eight days since he's been born. And Mary and Joseph are Jews, and according to Jewish law, they have to take him to the temple to be circumcised. So they go to the temple. And I want you to just kind of step into Mary and Joseph's shoes for a second this morning and just kind of try and imagine what they're feeling. Mary's 15, 16 years old. Joseph is 20. Mary's never been with a man, and now she has a baby. You get these weird magician guys showing up to worship your baby. Then you get these weird shepherds showing up to worship your baby. And I got to imagine that they had some uncertainty. They had some doubt that they were wrestling with. They had fears that they were wrestling with. I mean, to to have a baby out of wedlock in those days was a real big deal. And it kind of was going to be, the rest of your life was going to be shaped by that decision. Joseph's reputation has been really messed up. How is he supposed to run this carpentry business when people don't want to hire him because now he has a bad reputation? They're trying to figure out what to do. They're like, well, it's the eighth day. We're supposed to go to the temple to have him circumcised, so let's go ahead and do that. So they go to the temple, and when they get there, there's an old guy there. And the old guy comes and picks up their baby and starts prophesying over him. We don't know much about this old guy. We know his name, and his name was Simeon. He's the next person that God wants to be a part of his dream team. Simeon's an old guy. He's probably retired. My guess is he went that morning to the coffee shop with his other retired friends to try and solve the world's problems, because that's what old guys do. And they finished telling everybody what they would do if they were in charge of, of Jerusalem. And then Simeon went to the temple. And Simeon's this old guy that's holding on to this promise from God. God had spoken to him and God had told him he would see the Savior of the world before he would die. And so Simeon was holding on to that promise, and he's getting older and older, and he's wondering, did I really hear from God? Am I really going to see the thing that God promised me? He walks in the temple that day, and he sees baby Jesus, and he knows this is the Savior of the world. And so he picks him up, and he begins to prophesy over him, and he begins to quote these Old Testament scriptures from Isaiah, and he begins to pray for him, and he begins to pray for Mary and Joseph. And then this old lady sees this old guy doing this, and she wants to get in and on the act. Her name is Anna. And so she comes, and she starts to pray for him. Anna was 84 years old. And if you're 84 years old today, you've lived a long life. But if you were 84 years old then, you lived a really long life because the life expectancy in the time that Jesus was born was around 40 years old. And Anna's 84 and honestly, Anna didn't have an easy life. She had a hard life. She, she got married, and after seven years, her husband died, and she never got married again. And she seemed to spend the rest of her days at the temple, praying and oftentimes fasting. This was like an old lady that was fighting this spiritual battle behind the scenes. Like, nobody really knew about her. Nobody really knew what she was praying about. They just saw this old lady, you know, running around, waving her hands, praying in the corner, and everybody kind of looked at her weird. But here she gets in on the act when the Savior of the world is born, 
And she begins to pray for him and, and prophesy over them. And she says, blessed is Mary, the one who bore the Lord. So this is God's great, greatest rescue plan in history. And he's gathering his dream team to make this plan happen. And he starts with some pagan astrologers, a, pe- a priest with a cursed wife, and the priest doesn't have much faith, a poor teenage girl who isn't sure about this plan, but she trusts God, a husband who believes God, but he doesn't have an education, and he's broke, then some shepherds who are just nobody who lives on the edge of the woods, an old man in the temple, and an old woman at the temple that nobody knows. This is God's dream team for saving all of human history. It reminds me of a scripture in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I don't know about you, but if I was looking to put together a team to save all the people in history, this is not the cast that I would look to put together. I would look for more like the dream team from 1992, like those kind of people, the best and the brightest. But God put, pulled together a different group of people to execute his plan. And there's three observations that I, that I see in this story that I want to share with you this morning, and I hope that it will encourage you. The first thing that I see in this morning is that God is looking for availability over ability. God is looking for availability over ability. Intelligence and ability are overrated. Wisdom and availability are underrated. If I was putting together a team to execute this plan, I would look for the brightest minds. I would look for the most capable people, the most gifted people. But that's not how this story plays out. That's not who God was looking for. He was looking for people that were available. And when I say that that wisdom is important, I'm defining wisdom as understanding how God has designed life to work and following that design. These people in this story, they understood how God had designed this plan to work, and they were willing to walk it out. Sometimes you can take people that are, are smart and highly educated and super sophisticated but they don't even understand how life works. They don't understand how God designed life to work. Sometimes I look at people and I'm like, you got so smart that you got stupid. Like, what happened to you? How did you get so smart that now you turned into a stupid person that doesn't understand how life works? If you want to be wise, you understand how God designed life to work. Not how everyone else says life should work, but how God designed life to work, and you walk in that. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end leads to death. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need more people like Mary that will say, be it unto me according to your word. If, you, if, if God would have come and sent an angel to speak to scientists and said, a baby is going to be born from a woman who's never been with a man, they would have said, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a crazy, weird angel. Like, you don't know anything. Get out of here. But Mary said, if God said it, then that's how it's going to be. I don't care if that's how it's not how it's supposed to work. I trust God, and I know him. And if he said this is how it's going to work, then it's going to work. You know what? Sometimes people who have it all together, 
some people who are, are very capable, sometimes those can be the hardest people to work with. Someone who, someone who thinks they know the answers to everything, they know how to do everything. Sometimes I'd rather work with someone who just says, yeah, if you tell me to do it, then I'll do it. I'll trust you. And that's what God is looking for. Is he's looking for our availability to say, God, whatever you say, count me in. The second thing I see in this story is that God chooses humility over power. Power and position are overrated. Humility and faith are underrated. Think about the time in history where this happened. Herod is incredibly powerful. He has all the money, all the resources. Life works for Herod. When Herod says move, people move. Herod gets what he wants in life. The Pharisees are powerful. The chief priests are powerful. They're smart. They're educated. They know a lot. But they don't have a whole lot of humility. And they're not willing for God to use them. Look at Mary's response to God. Look at Joseph's response. Look at Simeon's response. God is opposed to the proud, but God has unmeasured grace available for those who are humble. Zechariah has studied God's word his, his whole life, and this angel shows up and, and quotes to him scripture that he has already read and he already knows. And he's like, eh, sounds a little far-fetched to me. So he ends up not being able to speak for nine months. But in the end, he lands in a place of faith and God can use him. And I want you to know that there are some of you that God has spoken to you things and you said, you know what, that sounds a little far-fetched to me. Like, I don't really know why you would want to use me. Like, somebody else seems so much more capable. Why didn't you pick them? And God says, no, I picked you. And even if you doubted, you can come around and land in a place of faith. The angel shows up to Mary, and Mary responds with belief. Joseph has some doubts, but when the angel shows up, he lands in a position of faith, and he ends up living his life out of this position of faith. Simeon is just an old, worn-out, retired guy. Anna is an old, humble prayer warrior. This whole story screams, the system of this world is not what God is after. I'm not after the wealthy or the powerful. I'm after those who are willing and available and humble. I want you to think about your life for a second this morning. Are you willing for God to show up and move in your life? Are you willing for God to show up and use you? Even if you don't feel like you're fit, even if you don't feel like you're the best pick for the job, are you willing for God to show up and use you? As you think about your life, is your life moving towards being smarter and richer and more powerful? Or is the direction of your life moving towards being wiser and more available to God? If you had to, if you had to take your life and put it on a scale and measure it, which would it be? Is your life moving towards being more available to God or being one of those people that's walking through life on your own, doing it in your own strength? The last thing that stands out to me in this portion of Scripture, in this story, is God is after relationship over knowledge. Knowledge about God is overrated. Knowing God is underrated. If you think about this time in history, there were a lot of people that knew a lot more about God 
than the people that God chose to work with. There were people that had large sections of, of the Old Testament memorized. But when Jesus, eventually we see later on in the story, when Jesus gets around those people, Jesus isn't a big fan of those people, and they're not a big fan of him. But people who have relationship with God, people who know God personally, those are the people that God actually uses to advance his kingdom. I want to read a portion of scripture to you that kind of spells this out in a a different way. And I'm going to read it to you in the Message Bible. I just want you to listen for a second. You can close your eyes and listen if you want, or you can read it on the screen if that's helpful for you. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 31. This is the Message Version. It says, The message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell-bent on destruction. But for those on the way of salvation, it makes perfect sense. This is the way God works, and most powerfully, as it turns out. It is written, I'll turn conventional wisdom on its head. I'll expose so-called experts as shams. So where can you find someone truly wise, truly educated, truly intelligent in this day and age? Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world and all of its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered stupid, preaching of all things, to bring those who trust him into the way of salvation. While Jews clamor for miraculous demonstrations and Greeks go in for philosophical wisdom, we go right on proclaiming Christ, the crucified, Jews treat this like an anti-miracle, and Greeks pass it off as absurd. But to us who are personally called by God to himself, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's ultimate miracle, and wisdom all wrapped up in one. Human wisdom is so cheap, so impotent, next to the seeming absurdity of God. Human strength can't begin to compete with God's weakness. Take a good look, friends, at who you were, when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes from God by the way of Jesus Christ. I want to read that last part again. That makes it quite clear that none of us can get by by blowing our own horns before God. Everything that we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes by the way of Jesus Christ. When God's looking at us in this Christmas season, he's looking for availability over ability, humility over power, and relationship over knowledge. Are you available to God in this Christmas season? Are you humble? And do you know him in a personal way? We can have hope this Christmas season because God has chosen to work through Broken people. Will you bow your heads this morning? Lord, when we look at the story, 
of those people that you used in your great rescue plan. It's probably not who most of us would have picked. It's not the best or the brightest. You were just looking for people that were available, for people that were humble, for people that wanted relationship with you. And Lord, I ask that that's who, exactly who we would be, people that are available to you, people who walk in humility, and people who know you, like Simeon, like Anna, like Mary, like Joseph, like Zechariah, like Elizabeth. God, we want to be available to you. Lord, I ask you not to, to let this season, let this month just be a time where we get consumed with all kinds of other things and all the stuff that each one of us have on the schedule, and there's nothing wrong with that stuff, but let us not get so consumed with that stuff that we're not available to you. Don't let us become so successful, so proud, that we don't walk in humility. Lord, we can find out just about everything we need to know about you from ChatGPT. We can Google everything there is to know about you, and we could walk through life and not actually know you for ourselves. God, would you forgive us for not making room for you in, in our lives? Would you forgive us for being proud, for busying ourselves with a million things on our schedule so that we're not even available to you. Lord, I ask that each one of us would be the kind of people that you would be looking for in your great rescue plan. You started this great rescue plan thousands of years ago, and you're still looking for people that you can work with today. Lord, let us be those kind of people. Lord, I ask you to bless our holiday season and our Christmas season but much more than just being a fun time and being, having way too much food and way too many presents. Lord, let, us, let it be a time that's marked by your presence. Lord, as we go through all the family stuff that we're doing and as we sit around a tree as, as a family and as we do all the stuff that we do, Lord, that you would be there with us. That we would be available to you. And we just take, take a minute right now why don't you just take a minute right where you're at and just say, God, I'm available. God, I'm fine with you You messing up my schedule. Think about Mary and Joseph's lives. Their reputations were destroyed. What they thought they were going to do with their life turned out totally different. Their lives didn't look anything like the life that they were planning together. but they were available to you. They were humble and willing to be used by you. God, we're available to you. Whatever that means, whatever you want our lives to look like, if, if things have to change, we make ourselves available to you. You are the reason for this season that we're in. Help us to remember that. Lord, I ask you to bless each person as they go from this place today. And Lord, I ask you to help them to be available to you. And Lord, as they step out, I ask that they would find you right there to meet them and help them 
and show them exactly what you want them to do. Bless them, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Merry Christmas.